Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you, as you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, I've got Will McGuire and Mark Easley. They are co-founders of Crowdfund NC. Uh, what that means is they're essentially building out an ecosystem here in the state of North Carolina for accredited and non-accredited investors to invest in local businesses. So those might be the brewery or the bakery down the street, or it might be the latest high-flying tech startup out of Raleigh or here in Charlotte. So um, great discussion about what crowdfunding is, um, what some of the protections are in place, and how their, how their website and their service is going to function and work and everything else. Um, as somebody that's actively interested in angel investing, I was really, um, really interested by their response on the question of where they see angel funds and angel groups as a result of crowdfund investing over the course of the next 10 years. So hopefully you'll listen through the podcast, kind of pick up some of their tidbits of information along the way, and then um, share with me later your thoughts on whether or not you agree with where angel groups will be in 10 or 15 years after listening to today's podcast. Thank you for listening to another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection. All right, Mark and Will, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Great to be here. Thanks so, for having us. Thanks um, for inviting us. Yeah, no, it's my first road trip to um, to the RTP to host a podcast. I'm pretty excited about it. There you go. So, Welcome. Yeah, no, we got to get directions a little bit straighter on my end, but um, <laughs> once we get those things taken care of, we're in good shape. It's a beautiful space up here. Yeah. Um, Where are we? So, yeah. Oh, yeah, the frontier. So um, shared the shared workspace we got here in Durham County. That's right. Used to be the old IBM headquarters, and since then it's been converted into a really nice co-working space for all the startups in this area. Um, of which y'all are trying to help. That's right. So we're here to talk about what y'all are up to, why you're all are up to it, and kind of um, what it looks like over the course of the next five or ten years. Um, so let's get that kind of kick started. Uh, we'll ask the um, that's the softball question that I always, um, always like to, to kind of lead into with. If you can just do the 60 to 90 second commercial of who you are, um, and then we'll take that and we'll talk about where we're going from here. So, Will, you're furthest away from me, so we'll start off with the, you. Who's Will? Yeah, sure thing. So, thank you for having me here today. Uh, I'm actually a North Carolina native from Wilmington, North Carolina. Okay. I went to NC State for about um, six years on and off through co-ops and then met my wife and we ended up in Richmond, Virginia. We had two kids and we're looking forward to moving back here to North Carolina in July. So we're super excited about being closer to family because we have family in Wilmington, family in Raleigh, family in Greensboro and Boone and all over. And we're especially excited about to letting the community know about this new thing called investment crowdfunding. Um, I agree. I'm excited about letting the community know about it too. So, um, Mark, a little bit about yourself. Sure. I was uh, started off life as a software engineer when I got out of Purdue University way back in 1978. Uh, went from there out to Silicon Valley and worked at Hewlett Packard for a while and then with Intel in the early days when they were still kind of a little startup mode themselves and was in the semiconductor industry out there for about 20 years. 
And then I moved out here to RTP uh, 19 years ago and I started doing uh, accredited, you know, in investing in tech companies. So I've been an investor and advisor for tech companies in this area ever since then. Okay. So this is a, it's a video podcast, or it's not a video podcast, it's an audio podcast, right? So the audience doesn't have the visualization that I do right now, which is, Will, you're probably a few years younger than Mark. Um, just, it's just a few, a few. A few. Where, how'd y'all meet? Where'd y'all meet? Yeah, we had a mutual contact. Uh, Lewis Sheets actually introduced us when I came back to North Carolina right after Innovate Raleigh Summit last year. Okay. Really saying that um, my family would really like to move to North Carolina to drive investment crowdfunding across the state. Because my wife and I had been benefiting from investing in the places where it's working well, like California and Texas and New York and Boston. We said, what an amazing way to create community impact, but solve the big lack of access to capital issues that just plagued this part of the state. So you were still in Richmond, you'd come back to an event here in Raleigh, mm-hmm. and then a mutual friend introduced the two of y'all because he knew you were interested in something that Mark was um, running or walking down the path of, I guess. Absolutely, I met with Lewis and then he's like, you know, you really need to meet with Mr. Crowdfund. <laughs> Mark Easley, because he's the go-to person in North Carolina for it. And then Mark and I met in uh, HQ in Raleigh, and we said, ah, I think there's something here. Yeah. So, Mark, how long have you been putting, I mean, crowdfunding, just talk about the history of you and crowdfunding sure. here in North Carolina. Yeah, so, so you know, as a, as a startup investor and advisor, uh, we have a great ecosystem here in North Carolina, up here in, in the Triangle, you know, and, and tech and healthcare especially and down in Charlotte and FinTech and, and other types of areas. So the opportunity here for startups and for investment and for growth of businesses is great. Uh, but like most places, we really had a shortage of capital. You know, was a, the number of good companies that were out there that were getting funded was very limited and low. And the good ones were really having to go out of state quite often to get funding. And so when this idea of crowdfunding came along back in 2012, I thought, well, that might be a way to at least provide another alternative, a new way to get some funding for a lot of startups and small businesses. So that's when I got involved with it. Um, Early on in 2013, uh, I found out that you could also do this at the state level. In addition to the federal, what we call regulation, the crowdfunding um, law there, we also, which was called the Jobs Act, by the way, and also very important, was was started and introduced by one of our representatives here in North Carolina, Representative McHenry, okay. down in the Charlotte area, was the one who came up with this legislation called the Jobs Act back then and got it put through the Congress and signed by President Obama at the time. So I found out that you know you could do it on a state level basis as well, and so way back then I took on the project. Like I don't know why I had the crazy idea to do this, but I thought well. Let me see if we could do something here in North Carolina. And uh, turned out our, my state representative at the time, a uh, great guy named Tom Murray, happened to be the, the chairman of the Commerce Committee in the legislature here. And he was a small businessman, so he understood the problems of financing very well. Yeah. And so when I explained the concept of crowdfunding at the federal level and said that we could do it at the state level, he took it on. And that's when we started working on the state 
version of the of the law called the Paces Act. Okay, so it's it exists on the um, on the federal level through the Jobs Act. Um, it exists on the state level through the Pace Act. Um, does it exist on other state levels as well, or is North Carolina the only one that has a state level opportunity? Right, that's good. Well, what happened was. Uh, when we started working on that, North Carolina was the first one to actually publish a draft law okay. at the state level, Yeah, which is really good. That's cool. Uh, but I didn't know anything about politics or anything at the time, and it took us about four years to get actually get it passed. Welcome to politics. And yeah, welcome yeah. to Politics 101. I know more now than I ever wanted to know. But um, in the meantime, though, about 30-plus other states have done something similar. Oh, wow. So right now, state-level crowdfunding is enabled in a whole bunch of states, and then the federal-level crowdfunding is available as well. Mm -hmm. So all of it kind of came together really fairly recently. This is pretty new. Um, around 2016 is when the, you know, when the actual rules and regulations got published about regulation crowdfunding. It was about 2017 for some of the state-level stuff. And so just over the last, you know, two years or so, we've really been able to test this out and grow the industry and figure out if it's going to work or not. Good news to report is it's working really well. That's awesome. So um, so then what are y'all in the process of building together? Other platforms that are out there in other parts of the country, you know, those other platforms are being used by thousands of entrepreneurs to raise billions of dollars of capital. Basically, what we're doing is part of what we're doing in North Carolina is to build that same investment crowdfunding ecosystem here. So different than other types of crowdfunding models, which some people are familiar with, like GoFundMe is a good one for charitable base mm -hmm. crowdfunding. People are familiar with Kickstarter and Indiegogo, you know, give a company some money, they give you back a perk. Different than all of those, investment crowdfunding is where people are actually taking an investment in a company. They can do that on multiple terms. There's all sorts of ways that they can do offerings, what's called offering, different exemptions to people that are investing in them. But then the day, the core of it is that anybody in the community now has the opportunity to invest in others in the community, other businesses, and receive the result and impact of investing in those businesses should any successful result occur. So, um, Mark, a few minutes ago, you said there are 38 other states that have, I think, 38, right? 38. 38, uh, give or take. Yeah. Um, maybe it changes by the time we release. Uh -huh. um, that are doing it. Are there states that are having good success on the state level, or are there entities that are having good success on the state level as well? Yes, there are. And that's one of the reasons why uh, the ecosystem we started building and we're doing uh, was because I was looking for an objective for this whole piece of this new alternative funding source for, for small business was, can we build it on a kind of state-like basis? Can we focus on North Carolina and kind of duplicate what's happened in these other states? Um, my favorite example is Austin, Texas. Um, there's a great crowdfunding platform down there called microventures.com. Okay. And uh, I've been following them for several years and they're doing everything right and they're doing everything well and they're concentrated on Texas. So Texas companies, Texas investors. Texas is a huge economy, of course, but we got a pretty good one too. We're the, we we're the ninth largest economy in the United States, state by state wise. And as we talked about, good ecosystem here for startups and, and small business. So let's see if we can do what they're doing so well in Texas and a couple other places, LA, like we'll mention, Silicon Valley. 
So we started off there, and one of the things I was looking for was on a state-by-state -state basis, are, are people being successful with both state-level offerings and federal-level offerings? And so when I went out to survey the market on that, I found out they were microventures being an example. Another good example is the partner we picked to work with. It's called localstake.com. Okay. Um, they're a crowdfunding investment crowdfunding platform out of Indianapolis. And they were one of the first ones to start doing the state-based uh, offerings, starting with the Indiana law. Okay. And uh, they, then they've since expanded into Michigan, Colorado, and now they're doing North Carolina. So we're really the fourth state where they're bringing their platform here to operate and help us uh, develop that channel. So talk about um, talk about how it works then, um, if we can for a little while, right? So um, I've got a startup, um, hypothetically speaking, I have a startup and I want to raise some money and I know about crowd, crowdfunding fees, so I give you all a call. Um, how does it work from the company's perspective in working with y'all? Sure thing, that's a great question. So we have a vetting process that we take every issuer through no matter who it is. And then a lot of that vetting process is understand the why, who the team is, what their business plan is, and a couple of other pieces of information we ask for. As part of that vetting process, we take them through how you build out an investment crowdfunding campaign, which is very similar to if you think of a Facebook page. On a Facebook page, you have everything about that particular group or entity, whatever it may be. Well, just like any other investment opportunity that's done offline, you still need that same information online. So we take them through the process of, okay, here's where your video needs to go. Here's what it needs to look like. Here's what your you know, you can put your offering terms out there. You put your risk, your disclosures. You can interact with investors by them asking you questions and you answering them on the platform and taking them through the process of laying out all the existing material they would put together anyway for raising capital offline. Then we partner them once they're ready with local state to go through due diligence, which simply means, you know, do the typical background checks and other parts to make sure that you're going through anti-fraud provisions and all the other things that you need to do is somebody raising capital. And then from there, we're marrying and looking together how to marry a marketing plan that lays out and really tells a compelling story around why they're raising capital, what they're about as a company. And all those pieces are occurring pretty much simultaneously once they're on the platform, and it's really helping the issuer get through that process. Anything to add, Mark? No? Yeah, um, I, I would like to add something to that. Basically, um, the first thing to realize is what you're doing is you're selling security online. So up to now, before these laws were put in place that allowed you to do investment crowdfunding, you had to sell everything privately. Most companies were raising money either through angel investors, through private offerings, um, you know, as it got bigger through VCs yeah. and, and going to banks and especially bootstrap, getting it from mom and dad and Uncle Joe, you know, all the usual old-fashioned ways of doing it. Well, you know, it's the 21st century. Well, how come we can't do all this online? You know, Apple can sell their stock online. How come a startup can't do it? So that was sort of the prob the big problem we were trying to solve was let's modernize and make this whole system a lot more efficient as far as investing in private companies. That's what those laws and regulations allow us to do. And so then the second step is once you've decided that's a method I want to use to raise some money for my company, how do I do it? Well, it's a marketing and sales effort, yeah. just like for any other product. 
But your product now is a security in your company, either some equity or some debt. And you're going to go sell that and try to find investors who are interested in investing in your company through that purpose. And that's really where the logistical parts that Will's describing start to kick in. You know, how are you going to make a successful campaign? How are you going to learn to sell a security? What are the legal parts of that you have to understand? What are the offering pieces you have to put together? And it's really two pieces that you need to put together to do this. One was what we call the profile. And that means the description of your, you and your company and your team and your services and your product and how great they are. It's the same stuff you usually always have on your website right now anyway. Yeah. Um, but you're describing it as to an investor. So maybe a little modifications on that. And then the other piece of it is the actual offering. So the documentation, if it's a, you know, it could be a Regulation D offering, a book called 506B, 506C, could be a Regulation Crowdfunding offering, could be an NC Paces Act offering. But whatever that is, there's a bunch of documentation you have to have, and you have to have a, uh, you know, the actual terms and conditions of the offering and the p paperwork that people have to sign to do, do it, whatever it might be. And those are the, the second big piece that the platform and the tools help you put together. So somebody knows they need to raise money, um, startup, existing, some company knows they need to raise money. They come to y'all to crowdfund and see, and y'all essentially kind of become their sales and marketing team for helping them develop the um, the mechanism that they're going to raise money, um, crowdfunding in that capacity, right? So they've got to have all the documents in place. Y'all are helping make sure they have all the documents in place. Um, you're letting them know that investors are going to expect XYZ, that they need to do that, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Right. Except we, we're not the sales and marketing team. Sorry, no, not, not that. But, but for the raising of the offering, right? For that particular niche thing, not for selling to their customer, but to selling to uh, investors, because that's essentially what you're doing. Yeah, so we, we help them partner with service providers that can help them with marketing yeah. and branding. So, for example, video production, huge piece of the crowdfunding campaign, that whether you're raising from private investors, credit investors, as we call them, mm -hmm. or raising from your crowd that's not accredited anybody else. <coughs> That message has to be compelling. We're not the ones that put the video together, but we can help evaluate to see if that message is compelling or not. Fair enough. Um, so to stay there, what you just said, um, I think is important. You can help them crowdfund for accredited investors as well as for non-accredited investors. Is that right? Absolutely. All in one place and can also do side by side at the same time. So talk a little bit about the non-accredited piece, and then let's talk a little bit about the accredited piece as well. Okay. Um, How about I cover the, the accredited piece? Okay, that's uh, fine. Yeah. Go for it. And uh, we'll talk about non-accredited. We had, so the, the accredited piece is all kinds of companies, and these are kind of worked with for the last 20 years, or the startups are doing, um, usually what's called Regulation D offerings, 506B is the traditional one, where you're selling some stock or equity or preferred uh, shares to private investors. Um, sometimes it's, it takes the form of other things like a convertible note or a safe note where you don't figure out the valuation right now but you get that later on down the line when they go for more more funding. Um, so those kind of traditional what we call private offerings we can now do online too and this is a very important reason why I picked Local Stake as our, our partner originally because like MicroVentures down in Texas they have what's called the broker-dealer model 
meaning they're a fully qualified and licensed federal and state broker dealer, which means they're regulated by FINRA, mm -hmm. the, the, the broker dealer regulatory group. They're regulated by the SEC. They get audited by those guys every year, couple years to make sure they're doing everything on the up and up. And they pass those audits just fine. So under this broker dealer model, it means they can sell about any kind of security that's defined out there in the securities laws. Okay. So that means they can do the private and they can do the public crowdfunding offerings both. And that's one of the reasons we chose them. So the first piece of our platform that we're offering to the North Carolina community is let's take all those private offerings that are going on out there, you know, one-on-one -on -one and through sort of events and things like that and investor groups. And let's put them all online somewhere yeah. where everybody can do their studying of the offering. They can they can vet it. They can figure out if they want to be an investor. They can figure out if they want to be more questions, do more questions. Um, but let's organize it, make it look good, make it stored properly so investors will be interested in, and then let's try to attract as many of those accredited investors as we can. It's a big part of our goal to really increase the number of accredited investors that we have in North Carolina. Right now, it's a very small number. If you look at the whole state, there's angel groups and few people around doing it. But it's so complicated, it takes so much time. Most people, even if they have, uh, they are qualified as accredited investors, they just don't want to waste time doing it. Yeah. And they're just investing on Wall Street and real estate and things like that. So we're just trying to make it attractive enough and easy enough for more people to be able to do it on the accredited investor side. And so half the first half of our business is let's organize all those private offerings, put them online, make them easier to do, and make that source of funding a lot bigger in North Carolina. And they've done a great job of doing that in Texas. So we know it works. It's good to know something works. Yeah. Or it's been done before, right? It's, yeah. Um, it's easier to follow in footsteps than it is to create your own. Right. So I'm going to come back to that. I want to talk, continue to expand a little bit on the accredited side, but something tells me I have similar questions for uh, for the non-accredited side. So let's kind of dual step this if we can. So we'll just talk about the non-accredited piece. How does that work, right? Yeah, it's it's very similar to the accredited side in the sense that the issuer still builds out a campaign page to talk about what their offering is with all the same details. Is it may have a different it, exemption, but... Is it almost the same... Um, information materials that goes out to the accredited as it does to the non-accredited you're just splicing out um, publicly different correct so the terms may be different fair enough the offering docs may be different yeah and it just depends on what the strategy is for the raise the local stake and the issuer work through together on that together but on the non-accredited side it's it's really amazing because when the law came out title three of the jobs act in May 16, 2016, is the first time in a really, really long time that anybody was able to take their capital, invested in early stage ventures or private businesses. So what does that really mean? When my wife and I were looking at it, when we started doing this back in 2016, we said, this is really neat. We can invest not only in the next Ubers of the world when they're super early and potentially gain from that investment, we can also invest in the coffee shop that may be expanding, where they may say, hey, look, an alternative way of funding this is we can mobilize thousands of customers we already have, tell them, hey, for your $100 investment or $1,000 investment, whatever it may be, we'll give you a 1.5x return, meaning we'll 
give you original investment back plus 50% on top of it over X period of time. Okay. How are they to find that? Again, the beauty of investment crowdfunding is the issuer, along with any lead investors they have, they set their own offering terms, which is a little bit different than the way it's done today. So what's neat about that model is my wife and I saw it and we said, you know, if this is really available to everybody, you know, we got about 10.3 million people in North Carolina, 300 plus million people in the U.S. In North Carolina alone, the ability for anybody to take the opportunity to invest in early stage ventures or private businesses creates a new world where they have potentially new resources to reinvest back in the obvious places. Their families, for one, stuff they've never been able to do together. Other families they work with. Maybe it allows them to reinvest in founders, further solve that lack of access to capital problem. But there's probably also these transcendent causes that they're trying to train their children on, or even individuals that aren't married yet, that they have something they really care about that may go underserved or unnoticed. And now we potentially create a sustainable world where there's more resources to support individuals and their families with how they care about their community. And that was a really amazing thing to my wife and I, and one of the primary reasons that we decided to quit the job that I was working before and come on and move here. Yeah. Um, it goes to a little bit, um, and something we talked about with folks in Charlotte for the last couple of years, um, the local food movement, movement mm-hmm. has grown really rapidly over the course of the last decade, decade and a half. Yeah. Um, and it was only a matter of time before people got more and more interested, not only about the food I eat being local, but the companies and the ways that I invest in. Because you understand local, you don't understand you know, Chicago, right? I mean, I've, I've been to Chicago twice, I don't, but I know Raleigh, I know Charlotte. Mm-hmm. Um, so what you're doing is you're giving them a platform to invest local as well as eat local. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. We literally create a world where the community is allowed to invest in each other and then create a sustainable impact through that. However people define impact, that could be financial, as yeah. we spoke on, but it could be other ROI measures as well. Yeah. Um, the great thing about this, you know, this side of the business yeah. is now it's not just going after you know the high growth startups. Every town in North Carolina has businesses that can potentially be funding themselves with this method. Yeah, and it can be everything. You know, the number one most popular type of uh, offering in crowdfunding nowadays is breweries and distilleries. Okay. And you can um, probably guess why. Right? Can we can we short can we short them? Can we short things? Yeah, <laughs> they got really good perks yeah. for yeah. one thing. But so. you know they can they can find that they can grow their businesses. They're, a lot of times they're mature businesses. They're doing just fine. Yeah, they want to open up a new one or expand, and they're just going to their customer base to finance that expansion. Yeah, yeah. and they're doing it with a rev share loan, the type of thing that Will's talking about. So we know now. A few years ago, we didn't know this, but now we know. Even in the traditional small business world, this investment crowdfunding strategy really works well. Yeah, if you got the right kind of thing, and for the reasons he's talking about. Will, are there um, are the minimum? So, on the non-accredited investor side, is there a minimum investment for somebody um, off the street to invest into a young company? The the neat part about investment crowdfunding is that's really decided by the issuer okay. working with local stakes. So, for example, you'll see some platforms out there. Um, that offer it as low as $10, or some deals, I should say, not necessarily platforms, but some deals where you got minimums of $10, really trying to include everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, typicals are normally $100 or $500 minimums. Okay. That's all across the board, really. So 
a little bit easier maybe for companies like the coffee shop, the brewery, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, but for the young startup, um, do each one of those investors end up on the cap table or are they all structured and funneled through one LLC or how does that end up working for the company? Great question. So as Mark mentioned earlier, there's all different types of exemptions they can use and also all different types of offering docs. So yeah. uh, these companies can use convertible notes mm-hmm. where they're not yet sitting on the cap table. Yeah. They can use revenue share, which is very similar where they'll never sit on the cap table. But they can also use safes where perhaps only upon a dissolution event where they're being sold, they you know get paid out, they never sit on the cap table. But there's also straight up equity. So say a company is raising at X price yeah. and then hoping to be at X plus something later, yeah. they can raise via common stock as well. So okay. it really is one of the reasons we partner with local stake is because the flexibility of business needs, because we're serving a huge diverse size and types of businesses out there. They need that diversity of offering types and exemptions to raise under. We don't want that to be an impediment to them raising capital. It's really around them focusing on their business model, how well they can sell their business, how big of a problem they're solving with whatever their business is accomplishing. So if they can focus on that, we can help you know, provide the platform that allows them to do everything else. Fair enough. <clears throat> we'll come back to that in a few minutes. Same question back over to you, Mark. Um, first question is, is there a minimum commitment on the accredited side or is it kind of the similar, it's set by the set by the company? On the accredited side, what we always look for is what we call the lead investor. Yeah. So that's somebody who's already going to invest in the company. Um, I've acted in this capacity, you know, several times yeah. over the years. So this is the person or the group or the, the, the angel group or the fund that's actually going to do the investment in the company. They'll negotiate with, uh, a, a, usually it's a growth, high growth startup, what the terms are around that investment. Could also be, could be a convertible note or safe, but it may, be, may attach a valuation to the company so they can issue equity. And that lead investor is the one that kind of bets the whole thing and puts that deal together and helps decide the term of the offering. Once they bring that, and one of the great things about the, the new model doing all this online is what's called syndication. Mm-hmm. And uh, Angel List out in Silicon Valley was the ones who pioneered this. I'm a member out there. And what it is, is it's a way to bring these deals to credit investors so you can make a much lower initial investment instead of having to invest typically for an angel investor $25,000 to $50,000. Yeah. Now, instead, you have the lead investor who's negotiating that deal for you, and then you decide if you want to join it. Yeah. And the amount that you have to pay to join, again, is determined by the company and by the lead investor as part of the terms, but it might be more like $1,000 or $5,000 instead of $50,000, okay? And a lot of lot more accredited angel investors are going to like that because they can take the $50,000 and diversify it over 10 companies, yeah. for example. So this is something that's worked really well. It worked so well with AngelList, they converted their whole business model to it. That's all they do now is what they call syndication. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So our platform was also supporting that, that syndicate model for the private offering deals when it makes sense. Sometimes you don't need to do that because a company has enough uh, investors lined up to raise the money themselves. But uh, in the cases where it makes sense, we can put together syndicates too. Do you see this over the course of the next 10 years displacing angel groups? Or do you think angel groups will continue to exist? I think they'll continue to exist, but the model, where the old-fashioned model, which some of them still have, was you would collect a fund. Yeah. 
right? So all of us as an angel investors in the, in the angel group might put in $10,000 or $20,000 and commit to have that fund. And then over the course of a few years, you invest that fund in startups as you go. Um, some of the newer ones now, they're working better. It works more like a syndicate where you're not pre-committing a certain amount of money. You're just a group of angel investors who are doing the vetting process and deciding if they want to go in. And if somebody wants to go in, you put in your money, and if you know, you know. Yeah. And so I think that model is going to dominate. And all we're trying to do is help that model be efficient by being able to do it online and have everything up there for everybody to use. So I, the angel groups are not going to go away at yeah. all. As a matter of fact, they're probably going to get a lot bigger, is my guess, because they'll come out with this syndicate model that's focused on particular areas of interest that angels have. Can I go into one example of what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, by all means, we're here to uh, expand. Yeah, so uh, my particular case, I'm a hardware and software guy from Silicon Valley. Yeah. So I happen to like this space called IoT, Internet, Internet of Things, um, which happens to be a really good segment for us right here in the Triangle. Um, we've got a good IoT companies and sponsors here and a lot of startups, and we've got this great group called Riot yeah. that uh, was started by some friends of mine over there, and they've organized this IoT startup community in a way that's just phenomenal. And they've got thousands and thousands of members in their meetup group and doing all these educational events and pulling together all these things around IoT because it's a real big expanding market for all of us. So uh, the syndicate inside of the IoT group makes a lot of sense, meaning there's other people in North Carolina like me who have expertise in that area, right? And so we're the best as far as strategic investors into any of those startups, but how do those startups find us and how do we find them? And this is where the syndication model comes in. You might, we, we're, you know, our, one of our goals is to try to figure out if we can do this now, we haven't done it yet, but it's to try to put together an IoT syndicate where we can attract that group of investors in North Carolina to invest in those companies. So do the, uh, it's, a great, it's a great kind of point and question. Um, is there like chat rooms that investors can talk um, with each other through um, Crowdfund NC or um, as they kind of vet and have questions about XYZ? How does, um, how does the platform work for the investors yeah. on both sides, right? The accredited and non-accredited yeah. perspective. You want to take that one first, Mark, or do you want to take How about going for the non-accredited side? Sure, sure. So on the platform, directly on the offering page where they're offering a particular type of security, there's a whole section where anybody who's potentially going to invest in the offering can ask a question, but also see answers that have been answered by the founders, co-founders, and team to other investors' questions. So it really creates a single place for people to go to get their questions answered. Whereas the way that's done now, it might be done through emails to different groups. You're answering the same question, I don't know, 40, 50 times. It really cuts down the work on the founder and the team raising capital, which is really good because the more that we can remove the administrative burden and get the team back to building the business, that's just perfect for both the team as well as the investors that want to invest in that business. So really what we're trying to do with investment crowdfunding, one aspect is really cut down the administrative burden that it takes on that particular issue to raise capital. Well, I mean, shoot, you know, you've, you've heard, you've talked to enough companies these days to know that, you know, they talk about raising money and it's almost like they shut the business down for three to six right. months yeah, while they go about exactly. their full-time job becomes raising money. So you're trying to simplify the process for the founder 
and open up a different channel for investors as well for people that have never accessed this space before. Yeah, correct. That's, right. That's kind of why we like the syndicated model too, is because you're really investing around themes. So just like I want to go to Google and have it, if I'm searching for food, someplace to go, and I really want Mexican food, I don't want Google to show me everything that's not Mexican. I want to find Mexican food. Yeah. Well, same thing with investing. Why should our investing process be any different? We should be able to go to a platform, see the stuff we enjoy investing in and be able to find it. Well, platforms create the ability to do that, and that's what syndicated model does. That's what investing in the different themes around North Carolina allows people to do of all different business types. Um, and same thing exists on the accredited side, I, I assume, as well as the ability to interact um, with the founders and a message board type platform. Right. This is actually, in, again, just another enhancement on having it, having it done online. Yeah. So all the due diligence and, and vetting work that any particular lead investors or angel groups or whoever is doing can all be shared up there on that. So the, the founders will come along and go, they got this question from somebody, they're going to answer it up there on the profile on the Q&A section so that everybody who's looking at it gets the same answer. And also it saves them a lot of work. So yep. every time a new question comes in, they know where, where to, when to post it and allows everybody who's interested in the deal see what the answer to that particular question was. And by the way, it's a it's kind of an important regulatory thing too, because in theory, you're supposed to be giving all the investors the same information yeah. to make their decision. But we know how well that works in those private offerings, right? Oh, yeah. Now somebody asks the question that somebody else doesn't. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, you get three different answers on three different days to three different people. Yeah. And, well, this is, so this is sort of overcoming that one. Yeah. And one of the things I want to I always tell this, the founders about this is they worry that they're going to have to say too much. Cause I mean, people are going to dig in their company. Um, the answer to that is everybody has some secret sauce in their company that really, you know, sets them apart. And so uh, you don't have to answer every question everybody gives you. Yeah. You can say something's proprietary to the company and we're, you know, we can't give you any further information than that. Um, so that's a perfectly good answer to a lot of things. But you do want to be, as far as you know, selling the idea of the investment, if answering the question as clearly as much as you can. Um, you're, you're nice folks. Um, not a nonprofit that we're setting up here though, right? So what's the business model from y'all's perspective? How does it, does the, do the investors pay for it? Does the companies pay for it? Is it a mutual, both people? How does it, how does it work? Yeah, the way it works today that's is a, there's really. That's a sort yeah. of a credit and a non-credited question also. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, we got, we got two paths. We'll go down again. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's really two sides. There's the company raising money. Yeah. And then there is the investor side, especially in the credited, which I'll let Mark speak to about in the syndicated model. But on the companies that are raising funding, they pay a percentage of their offering to the platform based on their total raise amount. So, okay. you know, typically the model is up to X percentage, and that's just what's paid upon close. Right now, there's also a model where, as part of helping a company through that process, there's a normally a monthly fee associated with that. Um, just on a deal-by-deal -deal basis where it makes sense. Sometimes that fee is waived, sometimes it remains there. There's also all the help that goes into, is my story compelling? You know, give me some advice on, is it? What needs to be changed? So there's ways that we can help and provide value to issuers on that regard as well. So on your side, on the not accredited side, kind of two ways, either a percentage or a monthly fee. 
Right. Correct. Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, and that's all negotiated up front. Everybody's fully disclosed on what's being paid and what's not being paid. And then the investors, they're just making an investment in the company. They kind of pay, pay for by the company not getting every penny um, on the dollar that they invest. But, um, but for all intents and purposes, the company's kind of paying for it. Correct, correct. In some cases where it makes sense, we may take part of that in the form of equity. But okay. the key part to this is that all the transactions are done through local stake. Okay. They're the ones who are collecting that percentage equity. There are other services that aren't associated with the platform, mm -hmm. like preparing your campaign profile, making sure it's compelling, et cetera, that within what we can do within the current existing laws, we may charge for those services and or take an equity stake as part of that compensation. Okay. So, interesting. Fair enough. So, Mark, same thing, different? Yeah, well, on the accredited side of things, it's the same if uh, there's nothing preventing accredited investors from investing in public rounds also. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing that, like we said, a traditional, what we call a 506B round can be uh, some accredited investors. Um, so, in that case, we're doing a private listing on local stake. And uh, again, local stake is going to charge a, a bit of a uh, commission on that mm -hmm. to to actually as they raise the money. But uh, the other half of the compensation comes from what's called the carried interest model, which is what Angel has developed. So what that means is up front, the company is not paying or the investors are not paying anything to get involved with the deal. They just decide how much they want to invest. And then um, some point down the road, when there's an exit, then you, this is where what they call the carried interest model kicks in, how you divide up the profits from that exit, assuming yeah. it's profitable. If it's not profitable, nobody wins. Nobody wins. Yeah. But if you have a profitable exit down the road, what happens is um, there's, there's something called carried interest, which is usually starts at normal default cases, 20% of the, the profit. So the first thing that happens is everybody gets their original investment back. And then now there's some profit left there. Um, and I should have mentioned a little earlier that in, in these in these syndicates, they are set up as a specific fund. It's called special purpose vehicle. Okay, so SPVs, yep. SPV. And that's nice, and the reason that's why it's popular is all the investors who come in on that one go into that special purpose vehicle, that SPV invests in the company. So it's its own entity from it's a cap table entity, perspective. It's only one thing on the cap table. Yeah. And it actually adds two things to the cap table, the lead investor who invests directly, and then the SPV who everybody else invests through. <clears throat> so anyway, when the exit happens, now the SPV fund has a profit. How's it going to distribute that profit? That's where these things come in. Typically 20%, it's that percent of the profit split up. 5% um, going to crowdfund NC as the, the fund manager. 10% yeah. uh, typically gets split up between a few parties uh, the lead investor who originally helped put the deal together and it could be more than one person yeah um, the we have something defined in ours called a professional expert which is not necessarily an accredited investor but it's somebody you brought into the team to do the original vetting of the the offering mm -hmm. they can also potentially get some uh, some of that carried interest and so that 10% gets split up by that. And then the last 5% goes to the, the, to the person called the syndicate manager. Okay. Um, and that could be the same as the syndicate lead okay. in some cases, but could be in on AngelList, the way that typically works is 
somebody's, the syndicate manager is managing that group of investors who's interested in that particular space or that target investing process. Okay, so you potentially create a new industry, so to speak. Correct. Oh. Well, you can really create a new group of interested investors for a particular target space. Yeah. IoT being an example. Uh -huh. Yeah, no, I get that. Because if you really like IoT, or you really like FinTech, or you really like any one of these other themes, you want to, one, see the other people you're investing with. You'd like to be able to be able to invest together and have a simple way of doing it. And so by having the syndicate model, it really enables those three things to occur in a place that's in a way that makes the investing process a lot easier. It also makes it a very social experience too because you're talking about a deal through the question and answers and the other things we've talked about prior. What, um, there's a, um, rightly, or I'm sure you always say wrongly, there's a negative um, perception around crowd funding investing right now, right? Um, why is it wrong? <laughs> People don't like change. <laughs> you know, we've got to a lot. You asked earlier, yeah. are we are angel groups going away? And I'm, I'm guessing part of the question, too, is are we trying to compete with angel groups? Yeah. And the answer is not really. We're trying to provide a platform to make the entire process easier. Angel An angel group. group could set up a syndicate yeah. on there called Angel Group X, and yeah. this is our syndicate, and this is how we do it. We just made their job a lot easier. But I think the stipulation is really just like any change. It change is difficult, and when you have laws that are in place, I mean, even the accredited investor laws, they didn't get disrupted until, what, 2012, 2013, and the public raises didn't get disrupted until 2016. They've been that way since the 30s. Yeah. So it takes a long time for people to shift that mentality, but it's just no different than, you know, if we ask somebody to find a location or do something without their cell phone, they'd say, well, you're crazy. Yeah. But yeah, we haven't applied that term investing process, and the question is, why not? Fair enough. Um, Mark, you want to expand or not? Yeah, I, I got a, an observation on that. Okay. Um, three years ago, I would have agreed with it. I would have said, I don't know if this is going to work, and, and I don't know if it makes sense, and I would, gee, you know, who's going to invest in, a, in investment crowdfunding in these companies? and. And, and by the way, you know, if you don't have a pro like me, who's why would anybody invest in a company? Like, you know, this is yeah. the, the argument you get from angels and VCs is, well, this is for the companies who can't figure out how to raise money otherwise. No, that might have been a discussion a few years ago, but now we found out some of the most powerful and best companies. Look at microventures.com. Some of the biggest unicorn companies are doing crowdfunding rounds up there. Yeah. Because... It's effective and it works. Now we know people A will invest, B it will attract a whole new class and set of investors. Yeah. Who are just as good as the ones we had before and better in a lot of cases. And C, it's a rational and reasonable way to do it, which is way more efficient and effective for everybody concerned. So the only you know, the only downside I can ever hear about it is the the question about the Reg C F uh uh Funding with the cap tables, which people bring up sometimes. But you're getting around that with an SPV anyway, now, get, aren't you? In a syndicated model, the SPV fixes yeah. that. On um, the non-accredited, it complicates it a little bit. It but, does a little bit, yeah. but typically for you know that's why it works so well for a lot of the retail and businesses and the you know consumer product businesses because they don't care. They don't care about what their cap they, table looks they, like. Yeah, they just go get a crowdfunding round this year. Yeah. You know, just to give you an example here in the triangle. 
everybody knows Epic Games. Yeah. They've crowdfunded the last, I don't know how many of their games by just pre-selling them as crowdfunding rounds. So their customers are paying for all the R&D. Yeah. But a company can do both on y'all's platform, right? They can go a non-accredited and an accredited at the same time or no? Correct. They can? They can under different exemptions and a bunch of other details. So they have to essentially, they'd have to pay under both models, We call it split offering. That's fine. Some of it's private, some of it's public. Um, Which is a, you know, really powerful and new way to invest that's still, I think, underutilized in the market. People can sequence them too. Yeah. Anyway, it works. Um, just kind of a specific question for you because... Uh, Will, you and I were, I was barely alive and, um, and I don't think you were at all. Um, how would this have changed things in Silicon Valley if it was available back in the late 1970s, early 1980s? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a real interesting question. I'm going to use AngelList just as the example because it has changed Silicon Valley. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea was... Back in the day when I, when I was working out there and there people were raising money, the whole the whole venture capital business was great. It was invented out there, and because no one would loan the types of money that a semiconductor company needed to even open the doors of a factory, you know, back then it was a hundred fifty to a hundred million dollars to open a factory to start building chips. Yeah. Now it's in the billions to do that, but. There was no source of funding at all, so that's when the people who invented the VC business started it in San Francisco to loan money to companies like Intel, so they can get started. So there was a great, great change at that time in how the companies got privately funded, basically through you know wealthy investors coming in directly who understood the business and understood the market. So the AngelList model just as like we were talking about earlier, moves it into the modern times where everybody does all their investing online. Yeah. Nobody was doing their investing online in 1975. Yeah, no coffee shops. Yep. Yeah. But now we all are, and we're all used to that model. And so what's the difference? When you go on your broker-dealer account right now, like Fidelity or Schwab, you're seeing all these Wall Street offerings. Mm-hmm. They're all regulated, and they're all you know under control. Now we've got new laws so that you can open up your investor account on local stake, and what you see is a bunch of private offerings. They're also regulated and legal and under control. Uh, but you can invest in those instead. So all it's doing is taking the same model that we've evolved from way, way back then, letting private people invest in private offerings, evolved it onto the Internet, first for accredited investors and now for non-accredited investors. And, you know, we're going to see where it's going to go. But I think it's going to be huge over the next, you know, five to ten years is probably, my guess, this is going to sort of take over how companies start, all small companies get their funding. I agree with you, and obviously y'all do as well, because you're setting up a business to be on that wave, right? But um, I have two competing thoughts okay. on it. One is that investors, um, A, want to invest locally, as we were kind of talking about earlier, right? They eat locally, they want to invest locally because they understand locally. Um and two, there, I mean, it has been written about a thousand times over the course of the last couple of years. There's less publicly traded companies than there used to be, right? So um, it kind of almost forces people into the, to the um, private marketplace, so to speak. 
Um, the second side of it is um, there's been so much written about the Ubers of the world holding out, going public later, expectations from Silicon Valley being different than Wall Street, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how do those two worlds come together, right? Are we overvalued? Do people get in now? Do they get heard versus they almost kind of have, I don't want to say have to because I'm sure there's a regulatory person that would critique that, um, but versus kind of that space opening up and more people walking into it, right? How do those things come together? Do you get my question or no? Um, it's different, right? I mean, it's just a, it's these two old worlds kind of colliding and how's mm -hmm. it going to mash up? Um, yeah. And obviously you're building a business that I think will will be in the right spot for, but there's also the kind of the risk of um, Silicon Valley screwing up the country again. Right. <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> you got that right. <laughs> so, um, well, I think it's kind of neat when uh, we talk about the U.S. is a free market economy yeah. for the most part. Like, investment crowdfunding is no different. When we're providing offerings out there that the issuers are setting the terms, they're setting them based on whether we're talking accredited or non-accredited. They're setting on what they think that group is going to pay. They do that by all different mechanisms, like Mark spoke earlier, that a lead investor may come in, somebody's got a little bit more experience in helping set some of those terms. Um, they may be working with the same lead investor on the public side as well. The only difference is, what are similar type businesses raising for? And I think that's to be seen over time, what that's going to be set at. But one reason we really like the revenue share loan as well, or revenue share model as we call it, is because a company actually has to be generating revenue. Yeah. You know, some of these IPOs are crazy, in my opinion, where you got companies that are just losing money hand over fist, but eventually they will be profitable. That is probably a valid model to go in some Hopefully. cases. Hopefully. But it shouldn't be the target for every single company because it's just like a kid being in high school thinking they're going to be the next NFL pro. Not every kid's going to be the next NFL pro, but there's a lot of value they have to add within what they can do. Yeah. And so we want to encourage that diversity of businesses to really see where they fit within that market. Well, I guess you, it, yeah, should, we, should we dive into, it's a little bit in, in the weeds, but but how much money you can raise and, and why it's set that way? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, I'd yeah. love that conversation. And then the production it has a lot to do with this, what, you, what the issue yeah, no, is. Yeah, 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 let's, let's yeah. go. And then the grandma protections as we call yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So I'll let you go into the, those protection stuff, but let me just explain yeah, how it works okay. first. So all of these new exemptions we have all have some limits on how much you can raise. Okay. And also how much people can invest. Okay. We'll, we'll go into that part of it. And then, um, you know, where you'd want to use them. So just quickly cover it. The old traditional way we call it 506B, 506C. Those you can raise unlimited amounts from accredited investors. And it's, you know, it's your, everything's risky, right? So you assume the risk yourself as the investor. <coughs> That's the important thing to all of these. They're all high risk situations. But 506B, 506C, people can raise unlimited amounts. Um, with the in the regulation crowdfunding law, the federal law, there's several type of definitions. The first one we call uh, 506C, which is basically says the 506B the traditional way of doing it. But now you're allowed to actually promote it a little bit. Okay. Okay. Before Good. a private offering had to be, you had to get personal introductions to somebody like me to hope I will come on as an investor. Yeah. Uh, you had to go give a personal pitch to an angel group. 
to get their investment. You know, it was all very controlled in that way. And so what 506C does, the first thing in the Jobs Act is it says, okay, it's okay to do some of this stuff online, put these private offerings up there. It's okay for you to promote it a little bit, let everybody know you're, you're raising money. Um, the main restriction is you can't talk about the terms of the offering or anything like that publicly, but you're certainly be able to talk about almost anything else about your company that you have on your website anyway because you're trying to sell your product and your services. Right? Yeah. And, and part of that is I'm raising money. If you want the details, go take a look here. Yeah. This is a big jump forward for everybody too. Absolutely. Then the second one is what we call Regulation CF, Regulation Crowdfunding. And this one is the first real non-accredited, you know, public offering thing. It has a limit. Right now you can raise a million bucks that way, a little bit over a million. It goes up a little bit every year. You can raise a million dollars that way and you can promote it and you can have non-accredited investors invest in it up to some limits that they have. Um, the third one is our state-based version of that, the PACES Act. That one allows you to raise up to a million dollars if you don't have what we call audited financials or, or uh, what's, what's the other word for it? Reviewed financials. Reviewed financials from an account, uh, uh, you know, accountant. But any, any business that's been in business for a few years can get that done with an accountant real quick. Yeah. But if you don't have it, you can raise up to a million dollars. If you got it, reviewed financials, you can raise up to two million dollars. Okay. With some limits. And so those crowdfunding um, exemptions are really kind of targeted for those retail businesses, those retail investors, and for relatively small amounts. Um, then the the next one on the on the Jobs Act is what's called Regulation A plus, and this is a really important one I I believe for the future of the whole industry. Um, that one is what's often referred to as what we call the mini IPO because it allows you to raise up to $50 million. And back in my day in Silicon Valley, back in the 90s, that was a normal IPO size, by yeah, the way. Pretty I average. Remember, yeah. You know, you weren't getting these multi billion dollar unicorns like they have today going IPO. But anyway, $50 million can be raised under Reg A, can be from accredited and non accredited investors. And a very important thing is, existing shareholders can participate in it, meaning they can sell. So there's an exit strategy for those earlier investors when they go to this Reg A plus mini IPO crowdfunding thing. That one's just gotten started. Um, there's been a bunch of them successful so far, but it's just so new that you, there's not a lot we can point to, but there's a dozen or so that have done really well with it. Okay. And uh, it's working. And it's, it's going it's, what it, what's going to do here in North Carolina is allow the second, the larger scale companies that have already been through an A round, B round, and they're scaling up and they're profitable now. How do they get an exit without going IPO? And one way is, well, every year you can raise another fifty million dollars through one of these mini IPO things. So you can do that every year. You can do that one once a okay. year. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So I believe it's once a year. Don't take my word on that. Think back. Yeah, it takes about six months at a minimum to set up, but the cost of setting it up is so much lower than IPO. And oh, the beauty of some of the yeah. you know company founders we've talked to here that are in that area is how do you incentivize employees to get stock options to come on board? Right. Well, great. A regulation A plus offering gives them a way to provide early liquidity to those people that deserve early liquidity for helping the company grow without having to be dependent on Wall Street to go IPO. 
it's a very yeah, neat it's, model coming it's up. It's really interesting. I've heard more than one CEO around here talk about that problem. Oh, I would assume so. Absolutely. You know, it's like we're giving out all these play stock options, but nobody cares because they know an IPOs. They have no idea when it's yeah. ever going to happen, if ever. Yeah. So how do they get some of that back? And to show you how powerful Reg A Plus can be, my wife and I actually participated in one where it was 2,600 plus investors in about two months raising a little under $7 million for a company. So pretty much a Series A round, which yeah, that's pretty powerful stuff, especially for companies here. So imagine being able to go to one platform where you can do everything from friends, family, fools, all the way through you know, your Reg A Plus deal, pre-IPO type stuff. It's a pretty neat world that's being created. Absolutely. So, uh, Mark, you mentioned an interesting term that you were going to touch base on, Will, the grandma protection. Ah, yes. Yeah, so in regulation crowdfunding, for the public crowdfunding raises, there are protections in place that limit how much an individual investor can put into offerings combined for the entire year. And those regulations keep changing them year after year, but essentially it's somewhere between two and five grand typically, but all those terms are online. So grandma's not going to lose her entire life savings and a year from investing in that. With the state regulations like Nancy Paces, they allow any investor to invest up to five grand per offering in any one of these offerings, so it's a little bit looser on that side. Okay, so federal is a little tighter, state's a little looser, mm-hmm. so it just depends. And all of that stuff, y'all help the investor, just like I would assume, just like y'all help the company, you help the investor understand what they're getting in, into as well? Absolutely. One of the questions before an investor ever invests in an offering on local stake is, have you invested more than you're legally allowed to? And yeah. they lay out what that is. Yeah. So you have to check that box before you can ever make an investment on a public round. Okay. Interesting. Um, what um, can, I don't know, can you use this... Um, can parents use this with kids to kind of teach them about um, uh, investing in companies? Is it a is it a teaching mechanism? I sure hope so. I mean, I've got a two-year-old and six-year-old. Mark, I know you've got children as well, but I literally just had coffee with somebody this morning that said, you know, we're already sitting around a table with our teenagers, and they want to know where we're putting our money. They yeah. want to know where we're tithing. They want to know how we can impact our community. They want to know where we can make investments, how we do that. And they're already doing it as family. So when you think of this huge shift that's going on now, which we haven't even talked about yet, but there's a shift of about $20 trillion generationally occurring between now and 2022, I think. When I've talked with other community leaders about this and community foundations that normally you know, help invest that part of people's income, there are literally conversations occurring around the kitchen tables where you've got grandparents, parents, the kids, grandkids talking about, as a family, how are we investing? Well, what better way than to drive a micro and local and say, look, you got opportunities right in your backyard that you know are going to have generational impact potentially. Should we provide the opportunity there or put it somewhere else? Yeah. So they get the opportunity to decide where to put that capital, which is a really neat thing now. Um, Mark, any addition there? Well, Shake for me, the, the definition of the kids is probably a little different. Yeah. <laughs> for me, the kids is the millennials. Yeah, no, you're fair. I mean, it's like, a like fair conversation, son, yeah. Right? And it is a really important topic because the millennials are going to, they, they want to invest over their phone and, you know, find stuff they're interested in investing in. And Wall Street's pretty boring. You might buy some Apple stock once in a while because you get an iPhone. Yeah. But uh, 
they're looking at, they're out there looking for, and it, we, we found this in the crowdfunding industry, by the way, a lot of these investors are from the younger generation because they're willing to take a little bit more risk and yeah. invest in those kind of companies or they like the product. If it's consumer product, it's a, or whatever it might be, they like the product, they're going to invest that way. So I think there's a lot to learn and there's going to be a generational shift over time to where doing all this online, kind of like what we were talking about earlier, or a wider variety of, an alternative set of assets is the way I describe it to mm -hmm. investors when they ask me, you know, this whole industry, crowdfunding, investment crowdfunding, is an alternative set of assets from an investor's point of view. It's not the Wall Street stuff. There's plenty of bonds and stocks you can buy all day if you want to. This is private companies in your town or in your space that you like that you can invest in in either debt or equity. So you pick if you want to get paid back interest or you hope for a long-term return. It's high-risk stuff like everything in the private space is. So make sure it's money you can lose. But if you want to diversify your portfolio a little bit and get into some you know, more favorable things that are really of interest to you, this is a good way to do it. Do you, so um, in the private alternative space, I mean, one of the things that's always been a detractor from it has been liquidity, right? I mean, your right. traditional angel venture capital is a, you know, it's a seven to 13 year dead money perspective. Yep. Do you see this providing liquidity to investors um, in a more, monthly, quarterly basis, five years down the road where there's they invest in company A, but they want their money back. It's no way for them to get their money back, but some investor will be able to come in right. five years from now and buy that equity or whatever it is back from them. Do you well, think that'll happen in the regulatory space? It's not, it, that can happen. And it's not only that. So the, the one you're talking about, that seven to 10 years, what yeah. I usually use yeah. return, if any. Yeah. You know, and and by the way, the VCs will brag that nine out of ten of them are going nowhere. Yeah. But we're going to find that one. You know. So um, in this case, though, you're not taking that high risk flyer all the time. You can. There'll be some of them up there, uh, and it, particularly like in the syndicate syndicate space. But for the normal crowdfunding thing, you're investing in a company that you think is going to grow and be profitable, but they're not going to be Uber. Yeah. So how does the, the company decide to compensate those investors? And if it's a rev share loan, it's with paying back interest every month. Yeah. And if it's a, a, just a getting to profitability and growing the company, they got dividends they can offer to the shareholders. Yeah. And by the way, in the old fashioned way of doing things, dividends was the reason people bought stock in the first place. It used to be, right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's only these high tech startups, including Google, haven't paid a penny in dividends to any shareholder ever, right? Yeah. But if you're if you're just a, a normal, fast, you know, reasonably growing company that generates revenue, well, you you can decide at any point when you're going to pay back some of that revenue and profit to your shareholders. And smart companies in crowdfunding space are going to do that right up front. Yeah, they're going to say as soon as we reach ten percent profitability or whatever it is, we're going to start a dividend program. And there are some companies already doing that. You know, companies say, hey, three years from now, we'll pay X percent. Our aim is to pay X percent dividend. There's no reason they can't structure that into their offering that I know of. So that's interesting. I, mean, I think you are, um, you're in a good space. Um, I'm excited to see what y'all do over the course of the next 12 and 36 months. I think it'll be really interesting. I'm assuming Crowdfund NC um, is the website. What's the website? How can people find you? Yeah, HTTP, yeah. <laughs> <Smith> <laughs> <Colin> slash, <crowdfunding laughs> So, 
Um, all right. Well, um, I mean, I've enjoyed the conversation. Look for, like I said, I look forward to seeing what y'all do, um, how the companies progress under your platform and everything else. So uh, thanks for sitting down and spending a little bit of time with me today talking about um, A, just the space in general, and then B, how y'all are tackling. I think it's been very informative. You bet for having us today. Yeah. So thanks, guys. Thank you. Investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey and Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey and Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey and Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.